From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And today's show, Tales of New York, features true personal stories from writers David Masello, Maria Perler-Houston, and Dan Zevin. My first day after being fired from an unpleasant job began with a visit to the unemployment office, followed by a lunch invitation to New York's fanciest private club. In a circle around my childhood home were the following families. The Argentos, the Palladinos, the Ingalineras, the Verdiglionis, the Santos, the De Santos, the Muratories, the Parlangelis, and the Vassimines. <laughs> we find our dream home, a cozy brick townhouse in a gentrifying neighborhood of Brooklyn. Gentrifying. <laughs> Meaning the ratio of bail bond offices to organic free-range ice cream shops is still about three to one. And on today's Between the Lines segment, Lisa Davis reflects on how a life spent writing helped her find refuge in places far away in time and space. I have written all my life because there were always stories to tell and it was important to tell them, I told myself. That's all just ahead on Read 650. It's architecture, it's culture, and it's general buzz combined to make New York the greatest city in the world. But New York is also a collection of unique neighborhoods, people, and stories. On today's show, we present three of those stories recorded at our Tales of New York event at Nancy Manicharian's The Cell Theater on Manhattan's west side. We begin with Read 650 contributor David Masello, who recalls two brief interactions with society figure and philanthropist Brooke Astor. Here's David Masello on stage at the cell reading Taking a New Direction. My first day after being fired from an unpleasant job began with a visit to the unemployment office, followed by a lunch invitation to New York's fanciest private club. Both events were firsts in my life. I arrived at the club after a run across town, my suit pockets bulging with Labor Department literature brochures on dressing for success and attitude and job performance. Before we sat for lunch, the hostess, a newish friend, took me and two of her other friends into the club's library. Fifth Avenue traffic was a whispering whoosh behind floor-to-ceiling windows. A couple on a settee made a voice-cracking toast to France. When a waiter asked for our drinks order, Katie, a financial manager, replied, tomato, ice, Lemon, please. Not an unreasonable or haughty directive, but said with an assurance I found admirable and unsettling. Soon after we entered the club's ladies' dining room, I the only man, in walked Brooke Astor, the then 99-year-old philanthropist and society figure. Even there, where diners' ancestors have streets and parks named for them, the room quieted and energized with her entrance. People asked their table mates for cues when it was okay to turn and verify the sighting, taking the contours of her hat. My friend knew Mrs. Astor and led us to her table. I shook Mrs. Astor's white-gloved hand, 
through which I felt a network of veins akin to Braille. My friend told Mrs. Astor I was starting a literary magazine. Marvelous, Mrs. Astor said in a gridded High Park Avenue as, we do need another journal of letters. <laughs> Such plans were only marginally true. I did want to staple together a sheaf of personal essays and call it first person, but I hadn't gotten past Xeroxing submissions from friends. I held my suit jacket close to my body as I leaned over to shake her hand goodbye, fearful that the addendum about pregnancy and benefits eligibility might fall on her heavily paprikaed soul. <laughs> as one of my lunch companions prepared to return to her job as a Times reporter, Katie, to resume managing the assets of a family for whom streets and parks were named, and my hostess to work on a screenplay about her CIA directive father, I foresaw an afternoon in my fifth floor walk-up hunting down all 12 combat roach traps I had secreted years earlier. <laughs> Although I had been removed from office life for only a day, I felt that everyone in the club knew I was headed back for another rerun of the Beverly Hillbillies. As we left the club, Katie and I walked the same direction, but I sensed she was eager to break free. How odd I probably seemed to her. She must meet many men my age, partners in established firms, handsome, chronometer-watched alphas who dine in their own clubs and hire people to find roach traps in their second homes. <laughs> At an intersection, she asked, which way? Curling her thumb like a hitchhiker to include, to indicate uptown, downtown. I figured whichever direction I chose, she'd say the opposite. Downtown. Oh, I'm headed up, she said smoothly. <laughs> she offered me her cashmered paw. She shook with a smart once up, once down motion, re-slung her cape, and took off, the sidewalk reverberating with her heel-heavy departure. I retraced the blocks we had walked. Near Fifth, I saw Brooke Astor leaving the club, struggling to keep open the door against a strong gust. I held it for her. With one hand, she secured her hat, its wide brim a current of riptide ripples. Thank you, she said, a frightful wind. She was unable to look me in the eye because the gusts were so furious, ankle-stinging whirlpools of trash spinning on the sidewalk. I was just a kindly stranger. Her driver folded her into the back seat, and when the limousine door was closed, the small part I played in her day had ended. The corner I had been standing on is one of those that is perpetually windy, a result of the positioning of buildings, Central Park, circumstances unknown. But the moment I turned on to Fifth, it was again calm, a tranquil spring day. I no longer had to close my eyes to the wind. Suddenly, for the first time in my years in Manhattan, with no office to return to, I realized I could go in any direction I wanted. David Masello is a widely published essayist and poet who began his career as a nonfiction book editor at Simon & Schuster, then went on to hold senior editorial positions at many magazines, including Travel and Leisure, Art and Antiques, and Town and Country. Today, he's executive editor of Milieu, a magazine about interior design. David's work has appeared in the New York Times and Best American Essays, among many others, and he's authored two books about art and architecture. A native of Evanston, Illinois, David lives and writes in New York City.
Marie Proler Houston grew up in a neighborhood on Staten Island where she says she never quite felt like she or her family fit in. This is Marie Proler Houston reading her essay, The Outsiders. Growing up in a German family in the middle of an Italian-American neighborhood on Staten Island meant always being a bit of an outsider. In a circle around my childhood home were the following families, the Argentos, the Palladinos, the Ingalineras, the Verdiglionis, <laughs> the Santos, the De Santos, the Muratories, the Parlangelis, and the Vassiminis. <laughs> True story. We were the prolers. Our father spoke with an accent, but not an Italian accent. He smoked a pipe. This was the 1970s, the era of big American cars like the Lincoln Continental and the Ford LTD. Most of our neighbors had at least two of these cars parked in the driveway, one for each parent. And if a 20-something son or daughter lived at home, there might also be a Trans Am or a Camaro. We had one family car, a powder blue Volkswagen station wagon. It had two doors, a hatchback, and windows in the back seat that didn't roll down. Riding in my friends' cars felt like being in a living room on wheels. Our house was furnished with Danish modern and lithographs of 19th century German scenes hung on the walls. In the kitchen, you were more likely to find a pot of pea soup simmering on the stove, complete with a pig's knuckle, than spaghetti sauce. My mother shopped at Carl Amer, a German specialty store on Newdorp Lane, and made sandwiches for my brothers and me with aromatic salami or liverwurst spread on thick, buttered slices of rye bread. I used to beg her for Wonder Bread. <laughs> she never gave in. Christmas was the time of year when my family's differences were most prominently on display to the outside world. In the weeks following Thanksgiving, our neighbors' homes lit up one by one with colorful lights and large, illuminated plastic figurines. Frosty the Snowman, choir boys in red and white robes, or the entire nativity scene. My favorite was Santa's sleigh being pulled by reindeer on the Vassimini's roof. I'd stare out the window at this winter wonderland and wish we could string lights somewhere too. Our own holiday finery consisted of a single front door wreath that we made ourselves with branches clipped from a giant yew bush in the yard. Inside, there was an advent wreath, also homemade, on the dining room table. Even though we bought our tree weeks before the 25th like everyone else, ours stood on the porch until Christmas Eve when we would bring it in to decorate. While I may have coveted much of my neighbor's extravagance, I do have to admit that once trimmed, our tree was prettier than anyone's. We're German. We invented the Christmas tree. <laughs> so. After a childhood spent feeling different from those around me, my chance to blend in with the crowd finally presented itself when I got to high school, or so I thought. Venturing into Manhattan to attend Stuyvesant, I remember thinking that surely, in the most diverse city in the world, my classmates would not merely be German or Italian, but a veritable melting pot of New York City's ethnic communities. I arrived at school on the first day, ready to be accepted by my fellow New Yorkers. Hi, I'm Marie. I'm from Staten Island. It was at that moment that I realized what would become a lifelong truth. To most New Yorkers, Staten Island is as far off a place as Seattle or St. Paul. 
Being born and raised there means always being a bit of an outsider. Marie Perler Houston is a freelance writer whose work has appeared in O, Town and Country, Art and Auction, and Country Living. She's the author of six decorating books, including Country Living Cottage Style and House Beautiful Decorating with Books, as well as two children's books, The All-American Jump and Jive Jig, and Christmas Eve with Mrs. Claus. She blogs about home improvement topics for BobVila.com and about the fun and frustrating moments of parenting for NickMom.com. Marie now lives on the other side of the Narrows in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, with her husband, son, and daughter. Writer Dan Zevin did his time in New York City, though his love for the city began to wane after he and his wife became parents facing a new set of challenges. Recorded at Nancy Manicharian's The Cell on West 23rd Street, here's Dan Zevin presenting his contribution to our Tales of New York event, an essay entitled Suburbs, How It Happened to Us. Thank you. I'm locked out of my locker at the town pool. I'm wearing a wet bathing suit, goggles, and SpongeBob flip-flops I stole from the lost and found. <laughs> when the fire engine pulls up, all the kids at the town pool rush over to the fence. They think there's a fire. But the fireman doesn't have a hose. He has a lock-cutting apparatus <laughs> that looks like a giant hedge clippers. He is a nice fireman. He doesn't look at me funny because he is wearing a firefighting uniform and I am wearing lost and found flip-flops. He is a fireman of few words. You're from the city, he says. It's not a question. He just knows. And then, you know, you don't have to lock here. <laughs> we are living in another family's house. It comes with their driveway, their yard, their furniture, their DVDs, their Xbox, and their town pool. We're here courtesy of Craigslist, summer rentals. Keyword, central air conditioning. <laughs> One summer earlier, Brooklyn. We are not enjoying ourselves. We are not having the summer of love. We are having the summer of Sam. Named in honor of our latest neighbor, Sam, who's renting a room in the townhouse attached to ours. Sam takes his crazy pill every night at 2 a.m. He spends the subsequent hours screaming very bad words at his girlfriend. One night, our kids wake up crying when the domestic violence unit shows up. Don't worry, they tell us. It turns out that his girlfriend is actually just a computer monitor. Until he can be evicted, they have a potential solution. We should close our windows. We have another potential solution, suburbia. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Six summers earlier, Megan and I have just moved to Brooklyn. We find our dream home, a cozy brick townhouse in a gentrifying neighborhood of Brooklyn. Gentrifying. Meaning the ratio of bail bond offices to organic free-range ice cream shops is still about three to one. But the important thing is, the ice cream is to die for. Our only dependent is a dog, and everyone we meet is incredibly friendly and interesting and a freelance graphic designer.
the last thing left to gentrify. The one thing left to gentrify in our neighborhood is our neighborhood school. The Department of Education has released something called school report cards. Our neighborhood school does not exactly pass with flying colors. This is what we tell ourselves. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. After all, this is the city, and we are part of something special. Here, our kids have museums and theater and artisanal cruelty-free pizza <laughs> and single-press vacuum-brewed multiracial espresso. And what else? Walking. It's good for them to be able to walk everywhere because walking builds up their leg muscles, especially when they break into a wild sprint down Atlantic Avenue like ours do barely escaping their daily hit and run by the kamikaze driver of bus 63 to Park Slope. <laughs> Which probably wouldn't be such a bad thing anyway because the only way children learn is from first-hand experience, so getting hit by a bus will be an important part of their education. <laughs> a teaching moment. Yes, getting hit by a bus in Brooklyn will make our kids street smart, not just book smart, we tell ourselves. And that, we tell ourselves, is going to give them a huge advantage over all those sheltered, shallow children from the suburbs. Could be worse. Megan and I are in the centrally air-conditioned family room of our summer rental in Westchester. We're watching our eight-year-old out the window, transfixed. He's been in that tree for like 12 straight minutes. He climbed it yesterday, too, and the day before that. Sometimes the kid across the street comes over and they climb it together. They just sit in it. They just sit in the tree. They don't even try to push each other off. <laughs> this is not how recreation is conducted back in Brooklyn, I recall. <laughs> in Brooklyn, there is a compelling argument for population control known as Carroll Park. Carroll Park is the kind of full occupancy destination that's all fun and games until your children are trampled to death. <laughs> One day I remember telling my kids, that's it, no more playing in the playground part of Carroll Park. So we check out the rest of the park. We find a quiet garden. It has some trees and a big rock. Leo climbs one of the trees. He's happy up there. He's content. Next thing I know, he's in tears. An old lady with a mustache and an apron that says Carroll Park Greening Committee is yelling at him to get down. <laughs> I tell her relax, and she starts yelling at me. <laughs> Your children are not supposed to be climbing trees, she says. Sometimes when Megan and I watch our kids from our family room window today, I think about that old hag. <laughs> Your children are not supposed to be climbing trees. If I knew then what I know now, this is what I would have said. Yes, they are. Dan Zevin is an award-winning humorist who has written nine funny books, including Dan Gets a Minivan and The Day I Turned Uncool. His newest book is Very Modern Mantras, Daily Affirmations for Daily Aggravations. Dan teaches comedic writing at Sarah Lawrence College and lives with his wife and kids in the suburbs of New York where he's an active member of his local Costco. If you liked this episode and like our show, please tell your friends. If they don't know how to subscribe to our podcast, please show them. And if you haven't done it already, 
please follow the podcast so you can receive our new episodes every Writer Wednesday. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, and Lisa Donati-Mayer, and our announcer is Fran Tuno. Our show was produced with generous assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. We'll be back with Lisa Davis, Between the Lines, after this short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Support for Read 650 comes from Nancy Manicharian's The Cell in New York City. Dedicated to the incubation and presentation of new works by emerging artists, The Cell has produced over a dozen critically acclaimed world premieres of new plays and musicals and serves as a home base for a large community of resident artists and organizations, such as Blackboard Reading Series, Artists Without Walls, and Tribeca New Music. View details and performance schedules at thecelltheater.org. Lisa Davis grew up in the American South in the 1950s, amid segregation and prejudice that she's worked to escape both by moving and by writing. For today's Between the Lines segment, we present the unique voice of Lisa Davis reading One Writer's Timeline. I have written all my life because there were always stories to tell and it was important to tell them, I told myself. It seemed somehow a way of getting at truth in the midst of a social order where lies and hypocrisy were the rule. In short, my fate was to be born and raised in the American South during what I have come to define as the last years of a slave society, the 1950s. Total segregation meant that people of color were invisible unless hard labor like chain gangs beside the highways or housekeeping by the women was required. To hide that laboring class was not easy because an official one-third of the state's population did not have white skin, and that was greatly underestimated. Growing up in that milieu and lucky enough to be taught how to read, I took refuge in places far away in time and space. Greek mythology was a favorite, with stories preferable to a single deity concept of the universe. Then in my all-white high school, I wrote for the newspaper and edited the yearbook. More important, I was blessed with an introduction to languages spoken by people of darker skin tones and more exotic heritages. I took that advantage as far as I could, and it set me free in many ways. If I had to write for the academic world, at least it was about revolutionary Latin America. Writing became a discipline with a nobler purpose. My first try was my family, a long line of poor whites, southern tenant farmers and cotton mill workers. My cousin, the genealogist and other cousins who insisted there were Native Americans, Cherokee, Choctaw in the mix, offered names and stories, but as I began to write memories of tragedy and deprivation, quarrels and early deaths proved discouraging. One day, in collaboration with gay revolutionary friends, I tried out my life as a gay girl since adolescence as subject matter. My love for the marginal was rekindled and there were publishing opportunities. 
To write and publish two books was a thrill far beyond a multitude of essays. Because I had been lucky enough as a younger person in New York to know old broads, as they called themselves, who had worked in the village entertainment business, there was a lot to tell, most of it unknown at the time. That history recalls a happier, more prosperous time when the village was the village, as the old timers used to say, and must be told. With a PhD in comparative literature, Lisa E. Davis taught at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, at York College, the City University of New York, and she's collaborated with the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College. Her novel, Under the Mink, recreates the 1940s world of mafia-owned village nightclubs. And she's also the author of the nonfiction book, Undercover Girl, the lesbian informant who helped the FBI bring down the Communist Party. She lives and writes in New York City's Greenwich Village. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show where writers of all genres contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. Please tell your writer friends about it, and for details, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you will also find open submission calls for our upcoming shows. That wraps things up for now, and we extend our gratitude for their contributions to writers David Masello, Marie Proby-Houston, Dan Zevin, and Lisa E. Davis. If you've written a review on Apple Podcasts, thank you. If you haven't, now would be a great time to do it. It really does help us, and it helps new listeners find the show. For more Read 650, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn, or at read650.org. Thank you so much for listening today and for helping spread the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.